Good morning. Good morning, friends at SUU. Tony Pellegrini here from the Center for Teaching Innovation. We are starting our fall podcast series about teaching and learning, the great things that are going on here at Southern Utah University. And I've got two guests with me here this morning, Josh Price, uh, who uh, was awarded the Distinguished Service uh, Award from uh, the, our provost, John Anderson, last uh, spring, and Jeb Brannon, uh, who is awarded the Distinguished Faculty Award. Um, and we're just tickled to be able to uh, address them and to, to find out what are some of the cool things that are going on in their classrooms, their activities uh, that have earned them this honor. And hopefully pique your interest to get out and visit their classrooms, visit their settings and situations, and be able to uh, learn alongside them. So if we could uh, start with you, Josh, would you be willing to introduce yourself a little about your background, maybe where just a moment or two, where you've come from and, and how long you've been here at SUU, some of the passions you have here at SUU? Yeah, absolutely. So Joshua Price, I'm originally from Portland, Oregon, um, where I was raised. Um, I bounced around to different colleges, ended up getting uh, graduate school out in New York. I uh, started my career in Texas, where I taught at the University of Texas Arlington, and then did some consulting on, um, full-time. And about n- almost nine years ago now, I made my way here to Cedar City, joining SU in the economics department. And one of the big things that attracted me here was the opportunity to work with students and be a part of a, a college um, experience and a college atmosphere. Thank you so much. Jeb, would you be willing to take a moment, tell us a little about your, your academic and personal past? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Jeb Brannon. Um, I teach theater and film on campus, and I'm the director of uh, the SUU in London program. I take students and uh, a few community members to London uh, every year to, to study theater. Uh, this is my 30th year teaching in higher education, and uh, I love it as much now as I ever have. Um, did all of my um, schooling here in Utah. I, I graduated from Snow College and Utah State, go Aggies, and uh, did graduate work at uh, BYU. Uh, I taught at Snow College for about five years. I was at BYU uh, for a year, um, and this is our 25th year here at Southern Utah University. Uh, my wife also works at the university. She's uh, the director of the Community Engagement Center. And, yeah, I, Josh and I, I mean, know each other and, and have a lot of respect for him and the work that he does. And, uh, yeah, I'm honored to be here. Thanks. That is part of the love that I have for SUU. What an exciting place where you can have those relationships, those connections, and um, enjoy learning. And, and, and teaching as well. Um, I, I, I really want this to be a conversation, so please, please jump in. Uh, it's not just a Tony interviewing two individuals. We're trying something new this, this fall, and I'm excited about it. I'm sticking my neck out. We're going to make it work. But uh, let's start with you, Josh. I know you're passionate about the, the HEAL Center that you have. Can you tell us a little about, uh, in, in regards to your service and the award that you uh, received a, 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 a Putting, putting forth the HEAL the Center. Yeah, so it kind of really started my own undergraduate experience where I was able to be a research assistant uh, working on a project looking at does high school participation increase lifetime earnings. Um, and so that really was transformational for me. And so part of my reason to come to SU was to, to be able to start that student-centered research experience. So when I got here, the provost was, uh, uh, previous provost Cook, was generous to give us funds to hire students to work on different projects. So some of these projects were, we went to elementary schools and tried to focus on interventions to increase math proficiency. 
Um, and about three and a half years ago, uh, with some other faculty that were interested in doing research, we kind of formalized our efforts and formed what we call the Health Education Action Lab, or HEAL. Uh, and that's been designed to give students of any major, of any um, class, an opportunity to engage in empirical research. And so we train them in how to do research, and then we help them uh, on projects that we're working on as faculty. And the, the uh, apex of what we want to do is we want them to start working on their own research where we can help mentor them. Wonderful. I'm particularly interested, you know, in students doing this research. Do they uh, pull along their professors in class or, or is it just to students? Can you talk a little about those relationships that may, may or may not be involved with the, the HEAL program? Yeah, I mean, so I think the biggest thing that we want to do is, I mean, when you think, when I think of like Bloom's Taxonomy and Teaching is there's this triangle of hierarchy of learning. Um, and research hits, I think, every single one of those levels. And by doing research is you're able to create new knowledge, like the very top of that. And so we really want to give students those opportunities. The hard part is research can be hard <laughs> and it, it can be difficult. And the, the, the first like two weeks, you're like, man, I love this idea. It's amazing. And then as you start to get into it, it's like the challenges come and the problems start to happen and uh, the problem solving that has to kick in. But by forming a community, by getting students together in a group, I mean, I think that's where, I mean, Jeb, you could probably talk about this with uh, SU in London, is there's some camaraderie, there's something special about students being in a collaborative environment where they're facing the same challenges and same opportunities. I think, and expressing or feeling or feeling that pain after two or three weeks, commiserating one with another of, hey, are you feeling the same thing that I'm feeling or am I different from you? I think that's a wonderful... I, I, I would say being in that group and, and, and problem solving together is as critical to their education as what they're learning about the research, that, that learning to work together as a group, to identify uh, problems as a group, to, to try different solutions on how to overcome them, uh, to, to delegate amongst the group for that problem solving. I mean, from my perspective, that education is as critical to their success as researchers in the future, as the hard skills of the research uh, process itself. Absolutely. When I was an elementary principal, um, uh, it was not anything that I wanted to do, but I had to terminate the contract of a couple of teachers. But it wasn't because they couldn't teach Spanish or English or math or science or whatever it was. It was those dispositions, those soft skills of getting along with one another, showing up on time, doing my part. In your classes, how do you... you, you um, in, in both of your settings or situations, how do you encourage or nurture those soft skills of, that are so essential to, to endure beyond that two-week period of, oh, my gosh, what did I get myself into? I think part of it is just to let them rely on each other. Um, and I, oftentimes I want to step in quickly and, oh, let me, here's the answer because I know the answer. Right? I've, I've, done, I've done this kind of thing. It's, here's, here's how you solve this problem quickly, but just to step back and let them go through that experience. Um, and, again, it's – uh, I, we developed our lab to try to help students to get into graduate school. And it turns out a lot of our students don't want to go to graduate school. But what we found is as they interview for unrelated jobs to the research they did, it's this problem solving. It's this overcoming challenges, the ability to stick to this, to, to a task for a long period of time. Those are the skills that they developed. And those are transferable skills for, for any degree, any, any major, uh, any type of job. Does that happen in... Uh, theater arts and drama? Yeah, so my primary responsibility uh, in the department is to teach the large general education classes. Um, I mean, I do have the theater and lend program. I, te I, I teach a little bit of acting, but but my real bread and butter, and, and honestly, the thing I'm most passionate about is, is teaching those 1,000 level general education classes, the introduction to theater, introduction to film, uh, you know, the 
1,000 level Shakespeare classes. And so those soft skills are the, the, the heart and soul of what I do in my classes. We, we have, you know, 90 plus students in those, those classes. And so a lot of the things that I like to do in small classrooms, a lot of the collaboration, uh, a lot of the hands-on uh, active learning, it, it just doesn't work very well in large classrooms. And so we spend a lot of time studying the art forms in my classes, as opposed to actually doing creation, you know, hands-on work. And so my focus is very much on the soft skills. We, 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 I think we all realize that in watching film or theater, we, you know, experience vicariously life. I want the students to take the next step and realize that what we in education would call soft skills and one business we call soft skills, that empathy, emotional intelligence, um, critical thinking, working together in a group, we vicariously experience that as well if we will take the time to deconstruct what it is that we're seeing. So I lead conversations. We, we watch the films. We, we study the aspects, you know, whatever it is that we're studying that particular week. Uh, but as we deconstruct the films, the, the heart and soul of the education is let's talk about what we're seeing. Let's hear what you think. Let's listen to what other people think. We don't always agree. Uh, I make it very clear that their perspective and their analysis has as much validity as mine. Mine may be based in more experience, but I haven't lived their life, and their life experience is something that they bring to the table. And as they begin to realize that they can share in groups their perspectives, they can watch something, critically break it down, figure out what it means to them based on their life experience, and then listen to other people and empathetically understand that those people's analysis are based on their life experience. And perhaps it's very, very different than, than mine. Uh, I think those skills are essential for life. I think they're essential regardless. I mean, because my classes are general education, they're, most of my students are not theater majors or not film majors. They are majors from all over campus. So whatever field they go into, they're going to have to collaborate. They're going to have to communicate. They're going to have to be empathetic. They're going to have to have emotional intelligence. And then ultimately, they're going to have to have emotional control, another soft skill that I think is critical where you need to understand that feelings are valid, other people's feelings are valid, and we need to process and discuss these uh, situations, these these analyses or whatever it is, in a way that we validate each other, but we also are in control and we learn to process and articulate uh, with emotions and through emotions um, and allow the emotions to inform the effectiveness of the functionality of the group as opposed to interfere with the effectiveness of the group. Thank you so much. It, what really is connected with me that you've shared here here is that these are really uh, approaches and processes to help us with the social emotional learning that we're getting a lot of support from our provost office on and, and that we're going to continue rece to receive uh, to be able to connect with our learners and have them uh, interact appropriately within society. The, the, the collaboration, the communication, the creativity that you've mentioned are going to help them 
I'm going to suggest here and pull a little out of you, uh, Josh, even in marketing, are those uh, principles and skills that that uh, apply or you put into practice with your marketing learners? Well, I think a lot of business majors in general think I need a specific set of skills that an employer hires me for those skills. And what we're finding from employers is, yes, those skills are important, but these things that like Jeb talked about are actually much more important. Those are the ones that students might lack a little more. And those are also a little harder for us sometimes to teach, right? I can sit down and show students a math equation and show this is how you solve this and everyone can get to that stage. But as Jeb's talking like emotional intelligence, this is something that's harder to do. But the one thing, if I can brag for Jeb for a second is um, he may not do this, but I mean, when he talks about the educational experience, you can tell that he cares. Um, and I know we, we met, had a group, we met over the summer and we talked and, and like what he does for students outside the classroom was impressive. And it's that level of care that gains the trust of students. And so the words that he speaks carries that much more weight that they'll listen to him. And this is where, you know, what makes a great educator, it's, it's, I think you have to care about the students because if you can't show that you care about them, then your words become much more hollow. And I think that's one thing that just resonates as Jeb speaks is you can just tell that he does care. Absolutely. And I think, too, that the, the, the principles of, of the creativity, the communication that you've identified are so uh, important, particularly as we're moving out of this COVID period um, uh, to, um, yeah. to move forward. To our brave new world. <laughs> whatever that might be. Whatever that might be. What, yeah, whatever new normal entails. Um, I would like to ask you about, um, over the last couple of years, this, this strange COVID situation that we went through, um, uh, did you lean more on technologies within your instruction to help your learners? Um, what are your thoughts there? Can you give us some examples? Is that something that was helpful or, or that you were able to put into practice to, you may not have seen as much face-to-face? Yeah, I think we learned a lot. Uh, I think we <laughs> learned a lot of things we can do and things maybe we shouldn't do. Um, and one thing I think we learned is technology can be a very valuable tool. Um, we can reach students um, farther away. We can connect with students in other, in, uh, through distance. But the one thing I think that we found maybe lacking and wanting is how do we form meaningful connections? I can see a student on a screen. They can see me on a screen. How do we connect? And, and that's where, as if you ask, like, what's this SU experience? It's that connecting. It's, uh, you know, as we walked in, it's like, you know, I, I see these students. I know their names. Um, um, unfortunately, they, they now find out that I know their name in public. Um, but, like, it's those meaningful connections. And I just had an experience where I ran into a student who had taken a class from me, uh, a remote class during COVID. And the student had clearly seen my face many times. I had not seen the student's face. And so the student's like, oh, Professor Price. And I felt like at a complete loss. Like, I, I actually don't know who you are. Oh, I'm so-and-so. And even with their name, it's like, I actually don't know who you are. I don't know you. And, and that's where I think is as we think about what this brave new world is, and I haven't read Aldous Huxley for a while to know, to know what the solution is and, and what he prescribes What's us to do. What's the solution? Um, but I, I think what we need to realize is those connections are not replaceable with technology. They can be augmented with technology, but they're not replaceable. And how we do that, I think, is a big challenge. I don't have the answers on how to do that, but I know that we have to do that if we're going to be something special. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think we're still learning. Uh, I, I would suspect that um, many of my colleagues, I certainly know that I did, we moved into the pandemic with solutions that gave us great trepidation. Uh, teaching live in masks, Zooming that class live at the same time, recording that Zoom and posting it for later dissemination, and then being able to provide the 
materials for students who attended in person, live over Zoom, and asynchronously over Zoom to do their work, get it in in a timely manner, us respond to them in a way that's effective considering the modality. I mean, how I respond to a student live versus an asynchronous student is very different. These were huge challenges. Unexpectedly, I found it really invigorating. And as I started to really try and understand my students in this new world, one of the things I found is that there are some students who, for a variety of reasons, function better. And so, uh, at least for the time being, I've committed to continue this process. So all of my classes, my large gen ed classes, uh, you know, not my small acting classes, <laughs> my large gen ed classes, I, I, I have maintained this. I, uh, I do it live. I Zoom it live. And I, I post live, or I post the recordings. Uh, I talk to a lot of people, and I uh, incorporated into my assessment with every single student I've had over the last two years. Um, you know, tell me what you think about this. And I found that there's a cohort of students who have who are either place bound, are semi place bound. They, they travel, and you know, is problematic. They make it work for them, but they're coming from. A distance. Uh, and then maybe most importantly, uh, students with uh, certain challenges, uh, for example, the, a social anxiety challenge, were able to, I, I found that those students were, were connecting and participating in class in ways that I thought were intriguing. I still have a lot to learn. Uh, but I do things when I lecture, when I, when I talk, I put the Zoom uh, up on the big screen. Now, I teach films. All my classes have big, huge screens, right? Uh, and I put them on the screen, and I open up the chat, and uh, I ask questions directly to, we call them the Zoomers, um, and they can post in the chat. They can, you know, uh, put links to things. They, we call it the voice from heaven. They also can talk, and we can hear them. Uh, and it has created this really interesting dynamic. Um and I've actually had a couple of parents reach out to me who have said, my, my child really can't go to college except in situations where it's virtual. And they have loved being able to feel like they're part of a class, feel like they belong, but yet be able to operate with whatever their particular situation is. Um, and, and those nuggets ha have driven me to, to keep exploring this technology. Um, I, I've got some flat spots, and I think there's some challenges, and, and I haven't solved that yet. Uh, but I'm going to keep working on it. We may never, ever get there, mm -hmm. but um, I think there's, like you mentioned, little nuggets that we've learned or acquired or are going to continue. It's not going. We're not ever going to go back to the old normal, whatever that was. But it is an interesting, uh, and I think here at SUU, because of our distance from uh, major metropolitan areas, that may be a valuable asset to us. And with that, I'd say is I mean I think Jeb is right. Is through these technologies, we can reach a certain population and have them thrive much better than in a face-to-face -face setting. But it also then creates this challenge of those students who thrive better in a face-to-face -face setting but realize that it takes effort to walk the four blocks to campus at 8.30 in the morning. <laughs> and so they don't. And so they stay home. And as a result, they're choosing 
to, to do something that might be less optimal for them. And this is where, like, as, as a professor, I, I try to become, like, almost a parent, and I try to take on these parental roles of how do we do this? How do we navigate to, to reach a segment of the population but to also not create outs for individuals to, so they don't do as well? And this has always been a big challenge. I've, I've always taught a lot of online courses. And students oftentimes take the online course. And at the end of the semester, they say, I thought the online course was going to be easier. Uh, and so they, they take it for certain reasons that are not great for their education and great for their goals. Um, and so we got to – and I don't know the answer for this, but we have to find ways to be able to facilitate these groups of students that are going to thrive but still also encourage other group of students that, to be in the setting – or I guess encourage all students to be in the setting where they're going to do best. And, and I don't know how to do that without like paternalistic policies, but that's just going to be a big challenge we're going to face as we try to make these accommodations and move forward. And I think that's the biggest problem. I, I completely agree. Um, being uncomfortable is the place we want to get to to learn. And so the student who might be you know, making the self-determination that the four blocks at 8 o'clock in the morning, that's a hardship, so I will punt – um, th that's a problem. Uh, and, and while we don't want to push people into situations where um, they are at risk or, uh, you know, are, are aggravating, I mean, whatever issues they're dealing with, at the same token, we don't want students to not go into those places that are uncomfortable because that's where learning happens. Learning doesn't happen if you stay put and are always comfortable. And learning doesn't happen if you push too far and you move yourself into a situation where you are, for whatever reason, um, there are some, I mean, legitimate functional blocks to your learning. So that sweet spot, which is a big sweet spot, but that sweet spot is hard. And these technologies can help us, but as Josh indicates, they also, I mean, could give people, I mean, weapons to shoot themselves in the foot. Choice is a good thing, but <laughs> you, you have to use it right. But I really do believe here at SUU, we really are set up um, with the perspective and outlook towards social emotional approaches uh, to be able to have those relationships with our learners, like you have with uh, Mr. Reiser here, that uh, you can uh, maybe paternalistically, maybe uh, collegially, you know, say, hey, I see you doing so much better. You know, when you're here on time, you're an adult. You need to make, I'm not picking, picking on Mr. Riser here, but uh, with that, whatever student that you're working with, uh, you have that relationship that you, whether it's paternalistic, whether it's collegial, to be able to say, boy, you do so much better when I can see you in class. Get up and get out of bed tomorrow morning and, and come to class with me. I really love your participation. I think that those opportunities are so profound here for us. Um, I, I really, uh, let's see, we, uh, I, I really would like to ask just one more question to you. Um, can you talk to us a little bit or talk, can we have a conversation about you, how you measure and assess your learner's understanding in the HEAL, in the HEAL program? How do you uh, uh, un make sure that, understand what your students are learning and assessing uh, through their research? Uh, we just randomly give them numbers, one through ten. <laughs> And, didn't hear that. and, and didn't as a parent, we say, you get what you get, and you don't throw a fit. Um, no, so um, uh, the nice thing is, at least with this, is there's a tangible evidence of their work. So whether it be writing code, whether it be contributions to a paper that a faculty member is the author of, whether it be that they're a co-author of a paper, 
But I think one of the greatest examples is when students come up with their own research idea. So Ben Funk and James Clark were two students this last year uh, that had been in the research lab for two and a half years. And they got together and said, we want to write a paper to measure the effectiveness of the defensive shift in baseball. So they outlawed the shift in baseball. And they want to say, like, does the shift actually reduce batter's success? So they came up, they found the data, they analyzed the data. They came to me and they said, Price, we want, you know, we have this, what can we do with it? I said, well, you should apply to a conference. Uh, and so Joel Vallett in the uh, MPA program said, there's this great conference at Baseball Hall of Fame. And so we encouraged them to apply. Uh, I had little hope of them getting in. I may have expressed that to them, but I said, this is still a good process to go through. And in the end, they got accepted to present it. And so they were able to present uh, this last summer in the Baseball Hall of Fame, their research to a group of sports writers and sports enthusiasts and sports academics. Awesome experience. And so it's not a metric that we can use to say this was a success or not. But for each of these individuals, they went into jobs um, that were not related to baseball or to academic research. Um, but the, in their job interviews, they were asked about this process. It's like, tell us about this. You have on your resume that you presented at the Baseball Hall of Fame. Tell us about it. And it was awesome for them to be able to explain the process that they went through. And so that's our measures of success, I think, is to see, like, are they achieving their goals? And it's very subjective. Um, and I'm okay with that, even though as an economist, we like to do objective things and measure things objectively. To us, that was like the pinnacle of success um, for them. Now, the other pinnacle of success is we had Candace Fair and Mitch Zufelt. They ended up falling in love in the research lab and got married this last <laughs> summer as they both went to Chicago uh, for wonderful jobs and, uh, and uh, grad school. And so that's another measure of success that we can look at. But really, it's the way we measure success is are the students able to achieve their goals? And that's actually really hard for me as a professor is I have ambitions for them. And I would love for them to live out my dreams and let me live vicariously through them. <laughs> uh, but as, we, as, as I've tried to really these past years really embrace their goals and support their goals no matter what they are, uh, then that's how we are going to measure success. And when you look at our job placement and when you look at talk to these students afterwards, they're incredibly happy. And, and they're achieving their measure, their definitions of success. And so that's how why we feel the health, the, or the uh, health education action lab as successful is because we're helping these students achieve their dreams. Powerful. Thank you. Yeah. I, I love hearing that in my large general education classes, they're not skill development courses. I mean, there is not a measurable skill. Every student needs to, I mean, wherever you start, whether it's an A or C, Everybody needs to get to F to have the skills to move on to the next one. If you don't have this baseline skills, you will not be able to see the next level, which assumes these skills. That, that's not the way these courses work. So it doesn't matter where students start. Um, if you take the uh, introduction to theater, I have, I have students who have grown up on the stage, whose parents take them to Broadway, who have season tickets to the Shakespeare Festival, and I have students who went to see their high school production of Oklahoma when they were a freshman, and, that, and that's the extent of their experience. doesn't matter in my class. The goal is that everybody grows. Everybody learns to appreciate the art form better. I tell them that the lifelong learning goal of these courses is that you they will be able to more richly uh, enjoy as critical audience members, critical thinking audience members, not audience members who are critical of what they're seeing, uh, <laughs> um, that they will be able to more richly enjoy uh, theater, film for the rest of their lives. And so the class should provide them rewards for the rest of their lives. The way we assess it 
Um, I introduce them to the course learning objectives. In fact, they, they have to identify and take a little quiz on it week one. And then whatever the final is, because the finals are, you know, radically different in, in the film class, from the theater class, whatever. But whatever the class is, there is one component of the final. That is, here are the learning objectives again. You need to do a reflection paper. Where were you with each learning objective when class started? And where do you think you are now? Can you identify growth? Um, and then my being able to look at those, those because of this number, the size of my classes, I, I do employ graders, but those papers I, I grade myself. Uh, and I am able to read from students their perception of the effectiveness of these, these learning outcomes. Uh, and then I ask them what worked and what didn't work and what can I do better. Um, and I see if there's any correlation <laughs> between those so that I can make adjustments to continue to improve so that, you know, year 31 is ex as exciting as year 30. And two and three as well, yeah, too. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and with that, though, I think that's actually really important is to measure what you're doing, right? So it, sometimes it's hard, but we need to come up with some measure so we can measure our progress and see, did what I do worked? Because um, I think every good professor is going to try to make incremental changes every semester. Um, and we want to be cognizant of are these are our efforts leading to progress for the students or leading to success? And so we have to measure something. And, and sometimes it's really hard to come up with those metrics, right? Mm -hmm. Here, yeah. I'm going to write my own rubric or I'm going to turn to another rubric. But, but we have to do some effort to try to measure so that we can see the, the results of our efforts. Gentlemen, thank you so very much for your participation today. Um, I, I've learned a lot and I'm taking away from this. I'd like to give you just a moment or two at the end here to give us any words of wisdom for new professors or uh, senior professors uh, to make uh, their lives easier here on campus. And, and, and uh, Josh, anything in regards to the HEAL Center that you want to share as well too, please, please share. Yes, my advice to any new professor would be like, follow your passion of what brings you happiness and what defines your, what will help you achieve your definition of success. For me, that's been student research. And I would love it as we move forward as a university that we find ways to support faculty in their endeavors. I find there's, there's always support for our teaching, there's always support for our research, but there's maybe this other category of the self-initiative, um, uh, there's self-initiatives that we could support more. And so I would love it to see like this university to embrace faculty who have new ideas who have new innovations that they want to be able to try and to support them. And then to any student at SUU who would love to, who would like to know more about empirical research, uh, reach out to me, uh, japrice at su.edu. Again, we take any student, any major. We have an open door policy where we'll help train you on how to do empirical research and give you the skills um, that you are looking for, no matter what your discipline is. And we, we welcome anybody and it's an awesome experience. I would encourage new faculty to do two things. Recognize that for students, learning often happens in their failures and in their mistakes. And to build into their courses, you know, it has to be adjusted for whatever the situation is. But build into their courses opportunities for students to make mistakes and fail and yet still succeed in the course. And the flip side of that is... Don't be afraid to make mistakes and fail yourself. Give yourself some opportunity to make adjustments. And if students can see that they make mistakes and can recover and learn from them in a safe environment, they're a lot more forgiving when you make a mistake and need to make an adjustment mid 
stream and you say to the students, you know what, I, I came up with the, the, you know, this worksheet and it, it didn't work. So I'm going to make tweaks for the next time. They're a lot more forgiving if they feel like that. I mean, you need to give them a box. Michael Barr always says, you know, you can't think outside the box unless you have a box, right? So you need to give them the box, but it's a not a cage. <laughs> it's a box that they can move outside of. And, and that's both in growth and in mistakes. So don't be afraid to make mistakes and allow your students a little bit of wiggle room to make mistakes. Uh, and then if you want to come to London, please do. Uh, go to suinlondon.com. Uh, we'll be putting up the 2023 trip here probably in the next three to four weeks. Uh, but you could go look at um, that website now and just sort of see what we do and, and how we do it. And it's uh, for all majors, all interests. And we even save a couple spots for community members because they bring a perspective and ideas and experiences that end up being really valuable for our students. What about economic professors? Is there a spot oh, for them? I mean, I'm, I'm, I, you're actually selling me I, right now. I, think. I would love, <laughs> I would love that. Yeah. Yeah. I, that would, that would be awesome. And other professors as well. Too. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and, and an economics professor will know that the entertainment industry in the United States in the next five years will become a trillion dollar industry. We're closing in very rapidly on that. Netflix alone is probably. <laughs> <laughs> Friends, thank you so very much for coming and visiting with us today. Friends out there across the campus and, and in the community, we appreciate you. We look forward. We'll be here next month with a two or three additional guests, faculty that have, uh, that have been awarded have received awards from the provost office we're very grateful for your time and effort gentlemen thank you so very much for participating have thank a you, great Tony. day Appreciate go t-birds thanks josh